Hello, hello! You're listening to Actually, It's Phytoplankton Planet Ocean, the podcast series for kiddos about oceanography. I'm Jamie Cool from GoToQ Remote Sensing, and here's Lachlan McKinna, our resident oceanographer. Hi, folks. Great to be back, and we hope you are having a fantastic National Science Week. We've got a neat little chemical oceanography lesson for you to discover today on the podcast. So we're learning about ocean acidification, which I'll be honest, sounds really, really bad. Lucky acid does not sound like it could be good for anyone. Well, it's complicated. Acid can be good. Lemons and limes have acid in them, citric acid, and we happily eat them. Okay, that's true. And if you're a fan of fizzy drinks or coffee, they're acidic too. So I'm more specifically thinking of references to acid rain on The Simpsons, where everyone is like running to take shelter and groundskeeper Willie has his umbrella and clothes melted away. Burns like a Glasgow bikini wax. Mm, we better stay inside, at least until the squirrels stop melting. And what did he say? It burns like a Glasgow <laughs> bikini wax. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so ocean acidification is a serious issue, but it's not as full on as melting squirrels. In the previous episode, Jamie spoke to Ivana and Stephanie in detail about the Earth's carbon cycle. And we learnt that carbon stored in Earth's carbon reservoirs seeps out over time and is then cycled back into those reservoirs to ensure that the chemistry of our atmosphere and oceans remain at an ideal balance for sustaining life. However, since the Industrial Revolution about 200 years ago, humans have significantly sped up the process of releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Yes, this is because we mine Earth's fossil fuels, such as coal, oil and natural gas, and then burn it to create power for our homes and cars and stuff. That process releases large amounts of carbon into the atmosphere and increases the concentration of carbon dioxide, or CO2, that's carbon and oxygen mixed together, or more specifically, one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms that have bonded. That increase in atmospheric CO2 also creates more heat. It's known to be the significant cause of global warming. Then the ocean steps in and tries to help by absorbing the excess carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and about 93% of the excess heat. However, through a chemical process that we will explain, this can lead to ocean acidification, which sounds kind of bad because it is. To understand acidification, first we need to grasp the concept of pH, which means potential of hydrogen or power of hydrogen for some science. Me, I am totally ready. Chemistry time. All right, hydrogen, like carbon, it's another chemical element on the periodic table. The pH of a solution is determined by its concentration or amount of hydrogen ions. It's really easy to do a pH test on water. If you have a swimming pool at home, you probably have a pH testing kit in the shed somewhere. So it will help if you look at the episode four resource pack while we explain this to you. So jump online, grab one at gotocurious.com slash resources, and here's what you need to know. The pH scale tells us how acidic or how alkaline a water-based substance is. pH measurements, like on a ruler, range from zero to 14. Seven is neutral. Anything above seven is alkaline or basic. 
Anything below 7 is acidic. And just to be clear, alkaline and basic mean the same thing, right, Lockie? Yes. So we might use those two words throughout this podcast. We say alkaline, we mean basic. We say basic, we mean alkaline. We'll interchange between the two sometimes. Don't stress. Something with a very low pH, like hydrochloric acid, which is commonly found inside batteries, is corrosive and will dissolve your skin. It's very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. The pH of hydrochloric acid is 1.1. Okay. But lemon juice, which is commonly found inside lemons has an approximate pH of about 2. It's safe to drink and eat, obviously, but the acidity of the lemon juice is why it stings if you get it in a cut or in your eye. You just got citric acid in my eye. You'll pay for that, Springfield. Pure water or some fancy bottled water like Evian or Fiji water has a pH of about 7, making it neutral. And then there's bleach, which you might use in your house as a cleaning product. It's alkaline or basic with a high pH of about 11 to 13. It is absolutely not safe to consume. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Don't do it. And can irritate your skin if you use it without wearing gloves, which I do a lot. And my hands really dry out. Awful. Substances don't need to be acidic to be dangerous. Both acidic and basic substances can be corrosive. Yep. So corrosive means it eats away at stuff, right? Yes. Yep. But neutral substances, they're okay, right? Yeah. Neutral substances are pretty safe, as are those that have a little bit of acidity or those that might be a little bit basic. Remember, you said before that folks with a swimming pool would have a pH test kit in the shed? Yep. Well, that's because you want to try and keep the pH of your pool at about 7.4. It's basic enough to provide you some disinfectant from a chlorine substance, Mm -hmm. but not so basic that it starts to irritate your eyes. Okay. So pH is all about the concentration of hydrogen ions, but the scale is, in my opinion, backwards. High pH, something like bleach, equals basic, equals a lower concentration of hydrogen ions, but low pH is acidic, like battery acid, equals high concentration of hydrogen ions. It's backwards. It makes my brain hurt. Yeah, it's confusing at first, but you do get the hang of it eventually. It's called an inverse scale. Mm. We've got some diagrams in the resource (laughs) pack that will make it a little bit easier for you to follow. Sorry, Jamie, but I'm about to make your brain hurt a little bit more. No! Okay, never mind. Go ahead. Uh, Why do I have a science podcast if I can't handle a little bit of brain pain from time to time? Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. The pH scale is logarithmic. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It sounds like my nemesis, though, Lockie. Mathematics. Yep, it's glorious maths. Ugh. Let me explain. It's a bit of maths and a bit of chemistry, and as always, look in the resource pack for diagrams that will help you understand. So, Jamie, do you know what an ion is? Actually, I do remember this from school, amazingly. An ion is an atom or molecule with electrical charge. So atoms become electrically charged when they either gain or lose an electron. Electrons are the little circle bits flying around the nucleus. It's negative if it gains an electron and positive if it loses an electron. And when you add another chemical to water, the water molecules will dissociate or split up. So what you end up with are positively charged hydrogen ions, let's call them H+, 
and negatively charged hydroxide ions. That's an oxygen and a hydrogen atom joined together, and we'll call them OH-. When you have more H+, your solution is acidic. When you have more OH-, your solution is alkaline. When they're in balance, you have a neutral solution. The way we measure acidity or alkalinity is by counting the number of H plus in the solution. But these numbers can be very, very small or very, very large. It's a huge range. And in the science world, data that spans a very large range can be challenging to visualize and interpret. So to help us, we use what's called a base 10 logarithmic scale. Each step of the base 10 logarithm represents a change by a factor of 10. That's the maths part. How's your brain, Jamie? Yeah, it's still working okay. Thank you. Carry on, Lachlan. Good, good. So, for example, a value of 10 would convert to 1 on the logarithmic scale, and a value of 1 million would convert to 6 on the logarithmic scale. The logarithm pH scale ranges from 1 to 14. For pH, we use a negative base 10 logarithm scale, which means as you go up a pH step, the number of H plus decreases by a factor of 10. Yep. Uh, this makes me feel like I'm Baldrick from Blackadder. This is me. Listen to this. Right, Baldrick. Let's try again, shall we? This is called adding. If I have two beans and then I add two more beans, what do I have? Some beans. <laughs> yes. Nah, just kidding. I get it. Because the pH range is actually huge, scientists use this maths trick to rein it in a bit. Yep, exactly. Here's an example. If the pH of a substance drops by about 0.12 pH units, that actually equates to a 30% increase in acidity, which is quite significant. All right, let's take a little pause and send you on your way to complete our pH activity. Grab the episode four, ah, acid, resource pack. Sorry about that. Um, head to our website, go to curious.com slash resources, pause the podcast, complete the activity, and press play again when you're done. When we come back, we've got an expert guest to meet. So pause now. Pause now. talking ocean acidification on the podcast today. Well, so far we've been getting up to speed on pH, but I think we've got that covered now. So let's talk about science and oceans. Well, just to clarify, substances with a pH have to be aqueous. Meaning they have to have water in them. Right. So table salt has no pH. But make some salty water and you've got an alkaline substance. Sea creatures like fish, corals, and plankton are sensitive to changes in saltwater pH. So that means people who keep fish in aquariums need to monitor that pH to make sure it's safe for their fish. Right, but it also means that changes to the pH of our oceans can have significant effects on the ocean ecosystem. As always, we've called out an expert to help us understand and unpack what is ocean acidification and why should we care. That's right. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Katerina Fabricius from the Australian Institute of Marine Science, or AIMS for short. Hi. Hi. Hi to both of you from Tropical Townsville. 
So Lachlan and Katerina are no strangers. They've actually known each other for a few years, right? That's right. Yeah. I first met Katerina when I was a PhD student with Ames at JC probably over, wow, a decade ago. I think we even did a research cruise on the RV Cape Ferguson together. Hmm. And more recently, though, I've been co-supervising one of Katerina's PhD students. Yeah, that was a fun trip on the Fergie. It's really great and so nice to have you back in Australia after all those years working in the United States of America. Yeah, we're happy to be back, aren't we? It's nice to be back. The winters are warmer. (laughs) Yeah, we still have the heater on, but it's, you know, it's not too bad. (laughs) Well, Katerina, here is something that you might not know about Lachlan. When he was 13, he wanted to be in the Navy, but he didn't get in because his eyesight is complete rubbish, so he has to wear glasses Mm -hmm. every day all the time. So instead, he ended up studying science at James Cook University and eventually a PhD with the Ames at JCU program. And ta-da! That's how I met Katerina. But we are wondering, what did you want to be when you were 13? Yeah, actually, from really early on, I wanted to be a biologist. I always loved animals and I thought biologists spent all day cuddling cute furry animals. And my dad was a scientist at a, at a big university, so becoming a scientist felt quite normal to me. And so, yeah, from early on, I realized I really want to be a biologist. What is it that you do now, Katerina? What's your job and how did you get there? So I'm a scientist at Ames. I'm a coral reef ecologist. So I'm studying coral reefs and I've got a wonderful group of people working with me, like postdocs and students and technicians and so on. And as a group, we are trying to understand how the combined impacts from climate change and poor water quality and other forms of human-induced disturbances are altering our coral reefs, in particular the Great Barrier Reef. So I had actually grown up in Munich, um, so as far away from oceans as you can possibly imagine. And initially I focused mostly on terrestrial ecosystems, but then I fell in love with the ocean and I heard more about Ames and coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef. And especially after one talk, I realized that's what I really need to do with the rest of my life. It's a pretty inspiring place, the Great Barrier Reef. It is, Hmm. especially once you jump in the water and you look around underneath and it's just it's Colours and shapes, and beautiful. Okay, well, we've already done half the show without you, so there's no more time to lose. We've just had a long convo about pH, so I think our listeners can make the leap now to understand that ocean acidification must mean a change in the ocean water pH, specifically a lowering of the pH, making the water more acidic. Katerina, what happens when CO2 enters the seawater? It's a really big issue for the oceans. So CO2 is one of the many parameters which determines the pH of the oceans. So normally pH of the ocean is about um, 8.1 globally as average, but there are big regional differences. It's different between winter and summer. It's different between day and night, especially in the surface waters. It's different where there's nutrient upwelling from deeper waters. So it it changes with pressure, with temperature, and uh, with nutrients. So it's actually a quite complex problem. We are getting a better and better picture through global models and through uh, ongoing measurements of how the ocean pH is spread geographically and how it is changing over time. Is it normal to have those changes in pH based on the factors like temperature and seasons? And then what's not normal is the injection of CO2 from burning fossil fuels or pollutants and things like that. That's right. 
Like offshore waters are quite stable in their pH, but the more you get closer to the coast, the more variable it gets. So because the temperature and nutrients and so are changing more rapidly along the coast. So salinity is another factor that determines pH. And the closer you go to the, to the coast, the more variable pH gets. But what we are have, having is a shifting baseline. So the pH gets lower and lower over time on top of all those seasonal variations that are quite profound. So 8.1, that makes our oceans in general uh, alkaline or basic environment. So we talked earlier about how the oceans absorb excess carbon dioxide and heat from the atmosphere and how that excess CO2 has been rising in concentration since the industrial age when humans began mining fossil fuels. So what effect does that have on the ocean? So... The CO2 in the atmosphere is in equilibrium with the CO2 in the surface ocean. It's like a glass of beer. Um, beer has got a lot of CO2 in it. If you have it standing on, on the desk, it goes flat. It's because there's more CO2 in mm-hmm. the beer than in the atmosphere. Similarly, um, because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere than there is in, has been in the ocean in the past the ocean is now taking up the CO2 and that is changing the seawater chemistry profoundly. It's changing it so much that the pH has actually already dropped by 0.12 units since um, pre-industrial times. That doesn't sound like much, but pH is on a logarithmic scale and not just the base logarithm, but log 10. So a change by 0.12 units is about a 30% increase in the acidity of the seawater in these about 140 years. Can you explain to us the chemical processes of ocean acidification? Sure. It's not easy, but basically, in a nutshell, when CO2 enters into water, it combines with water, and that is forming carbonic acid, which is a mild acid. Mild acids are not very stable, and they release their hydrogen ions fairly readily you'll know that hydrogen ions are basically um, what makes acidity. So when CO2 enters into water, it combines with water, it forms carbonic acid. Carbonic acid splits into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. But what it also does is that these hydrogen ions are actually quite reactive. And so they're grabbing other molecules, such as carbonate ions, to form, again, bicarbonate. We have got a whole heap of types of carbon ions in the seawater, carbonate, bicarbonate, CO2, and carbonic acid. And they're all going back and forth, which really buffers the seawater quite nicely. So it is less responsive than fresh water. But what is happening is that the additional CO2 is shifting the pH, and therefore the balance between carbonate and CO2 is changing away from the carbonate to it's a CO2 component of the equation. So other ions in the water like nutrients and uh, and so on are also contributing to determining pH. We're talking about the sort of the total alkalinity of the seawater, which is a very abstract concept in a way. It's it's a sum of things that determine the pH. And so co- in combination, all these components of dissolved inorganic carbon that I just mentioned, carbonate, bicarbonate, and CO2, and carbonic acid are one one part of the equation. And then all these other things like boric acid and, um, and other things are contributing to total alkalinity. 
The whole system is quite complex. It's relatively stable, but the addition of CO2 is changing the seawater pH quite measurably and rapidly. So for us humans, a fall in pH of 0.12 is not something that we can feel on our skin, but we're not the only things in the world. Tiny sea creatures can be really sensitive to pH change. So what sort of impact does that falling pH have on creatures in the ocean? So the whole concept is called ocean acidification. And 15 years ago, very few scientists knew it was happening and very few people had heard the term. Now the term is becoming more and more established and ecologists like myself have spent a lot of time trying to understand how individual organisms, like their physiology, but also how whole ecosystems are changing in response to ocean acidification. It's early days, but what we are seeing is that organisms that form calcium carbonate shells are particularly sensitive to ocean acidification. And calcium carbonate shells are formed by tiny little algae called coccolithophoreids. They're all formed by corals, which um, are forming the whole coral reef ecosystem. And they're also important for things like um, the oysters we are eating, like the tiny little oyster larvae are highly sensitive to increasing CO2 and declining pH. They can't form their shells any longer. And oyster farmers have indeed um, seen a failure of oyster reproduction where ocean acidification is affecting their broodstock. Right. So we talked a bit about coccolithophores in our first season. We talked about Emiliana Huxley a lot and how they're double climate fighters. So if they don't have their shells and they can't survive, then they can't sink carbon back down into the ocean and we all die so (laughs) we um we need them we need them for our carbon pump yeah so is there any evidence that you know of where ocean acidification is happening now well unfortunately ocean acidification is a global issue it's happening everywhere so the problem is probably most severe in the polar regions because um there the chemistry is such that calcifying organisms are already on the boundary of where they can still calcify or where they start dissolve. It's a little bit better in the tropical areas, but tropical areas have things like coral reefs, which are hypercalcifying systems, and they totally depend on the um, carbonate ions in the seawater as well. So it's really bad everywhere. And it's very easy to measure in the open ocean because um, open oceans are quite stable. But we've just published a study last year which showed that even complex ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef is changing measurably. And in the last 10 years, since our high um, sensitive instruments have started measuring, the system has already changed by 6% in 10 years and it's accelerating. So do you know what sort of impacts there have been? Macroalgae really are responding positively to high CO2. Seagrass is responding positively. So these are doing photosynthesis and they are CO2 limited. And with high light and high nutrient availability, we get more algae, we get more seagrass. But we are getting far fewer corals. So a lot of corals are highly sensitive to CO2. So we are seeing a decline in coral diversity. We are seeing a decline in all the critters that are associated with coral reefs, like the crabs and shrimps and sea stars and um, sea urchins and so on that are living in coral reefs that are not immediately affected by CO2 themselves, but their habitat is changing. Therefore, the biodiversity declines. 
So we can also see changes in, in colder waters. Like um, there are these little uh, things that are called pteropods, or a common name is sea butterflies, and their shells are getting thinner and thinner. And we can, can see that these sea butterfly, which are really important as food for the whole food web in, in some of these um, polar regions, is getting thinner and their numbers are declining. Ocean acidification is already changing marine ecosystems, probably pretty much everywhere. And the sad thing is it is pretty much irreversible in human timescales because it needs geological timescales to slowly remove the CO2 from the seawater. I mean, obviously, this is a globally observable phenomena, this, the ocean acidification. So what sort of instruments and scientific processes do you use to monitor and study ocean pH? Globally, more and more mooring buoys have been deployed to measure the change in ocean pH and CO2. pH is quite difficult to measure. You may have come across litmus paper, uh, which basically changes color when you dip it into a soda water compared to fresh water or so. Um, the same indicator dyes can be used scientifically by um, taking seawater samples, putting a little bit of indicator dye into the sample and then putting it into an instrument that's called spectrophotometer that can basically determine whether the color of the water is a little bit more on the purple spectrum or a little bit more on the yellow spectrum with the change from purple to yellow indicating the pH of the seawater. We can also use infrared to um, quantify the amount of carbon dioxide in air sample. So if you have to strip out the air and, and detect the CO2 in what has been stripped out. And we can use water samples and use pretty sophisticated instruments to quantify the total amount of dissolved inorganic carbon and of total alkalinity and then calculate pH from those two variables. And I learned that inorganic carbon is the carbon that is not existing inside an organic thing. So it's not in an animal, it's not in a shell, it's not in bones. And it's not <laughs> in an organic molecule. Like a sugar is an um, organic molecule. Lipid is an organic molecule. So protein contains carbon as well. So all of these things are excluded. You're really looking at the inorganic forms mm -hmm. of carbon. So we live on the Sunshine Coast beautiful place and you live in Townsville also a beautiful place and actually a lot of people in Australia live by our beautiful coastline and it is a huge part of our lives so when I chatted to Ivona Setinich and Steph Henson about Earth's carbon cycle in an earlier episode they mentioned to me that coastal areas like where we live get pretty heavy injections of CO2 into the waters due to pollution and river runoff so for those of us living by the coast What sort of changes can we make in our daily lives to help slow ocean acidification? Yeah, that's a really important point. This um, ocean acidification at the coast is actually happening even faster than in the open ocean because of the additional nutrients running off from the sewage and from, from agricultural farms like fertilizer runoff. So those additional nutrients are fueling uptake um, and basically increasing the CO2. The Ocean acidification is a really scary issue. We are predicting that under current emissions projections, ocean pH will reach 7.8 by the end of the centuries. So that's a decline by open four units, a doubling in, in acidity. So that's really bad. What we can do is to at least help the coastal areas, which are really important for most of us, by really focusing on cleaning up water quality. That's the best thing we can do. 
Okay, and last but not least, National Science Week this year is all about food. So what's your favourite food, Katerina, and how can you connect it back to phytoplankton? I'm actually becoming vegetarian to reduce my own carbon footprint. So I'm focusing more on locally grown terrestrial food than the phytoplankton. But I guess we are all really owing a huge thank you to all the phytoplankton because they are keeping our atmosphere stable. They are contributing to our food security because they are taking in some of the CO2 that we are emitting that is so detrimental to food security, to the climate stability. So yes, we are all depending to some extent on the phytoplankton and including what we are eating and how safe and wealthy and healthy we are living in our beautiful world. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Katerina. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. And Lachlan, do you want to remind everyone how they can win an Oculus Quest VR headset? Of course. Head to our website, gotocurious.com, or find more information on our socials at GoToCurious. We want to give one lucky fan a new Oculus Quest VR headset as well as the game Ocean Rift. We'll also set you up with a copy of the Phytoplankton Zoo so you can swim around with the giant 3D phytoplankton and learn about them in a VR environment. We want to know, in 50 words or less, how will you use your new VR headset to excite someone else about science? Yay! Next episode is Lachlan's Time to Shine. <laughs> episode 5 is all about ocean optics. That means the physics of light in water. So physics is Lachlan's thing, but for some extra help, we're joined by our friend and colleague, NASA scientist, Ryan Vandermeulen, who you may remember from Season 1. So stoked to talk with Ryan again. What did he say when you asked him if he would be on the podcast again? He said, yes, a million times, yes. <laughs> he is such a nerd. <laughs> so see you next time, Fido fans. Bye. Bye. Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go to Curious production proudly supported by a National Science Week grant from the Australian Commonwealth Government. Thank you to all our expert guests collaborating on Season 2, and special thanks to co-presenters Ivana Setinich and Lachlan McKinna, who work behind the scenes as script consultants. The series is prepared and written by me, Jamie Cool. I compose our theme music and create the resource materials on our website, gotocurious.com. Our fabulous logos are designed by Hannah at Boone Creative.